Welcome to Mindfully Healing, a mental health podcast. I'm your host, Micheline Malouf, a trauma-informed and trained therapist. And I'm Nadia Desi, a registered social worker and psychotherapist. We are here to guide you through the connection between your mind and body to help you develop a deeper understanding of yourself. Join us on each episode as we navigate each topic by posing questions to our mind and then having deep conversations with each other, ourselves, and special guests to help us come full circle and answer each question. This season, we discuss trauma, trauma responses, attachment, and relationships. In each episode, we provide you with resources and tools to begin to heal your inner child, set boundaries, and help you along your journey of healing. Dear mind, why do I feel like it's all my fault and I am the problem in my relationship? Welcome back to Mindfully Healing. I'm your host, Micheline Malouf. And I'm Nadia Desi. And today we have the amazing Dr. Nehla, who is going to be talking to us about healthy versus unhealthy relationships, narcissistic abuse, gaslighting, and what to do about them. Welcome, Nehla. How are you? Hi, guys. I'm good. How are you? Good. We're so excited to have you on. And this is such an important topic. I feel like relationships are such a big part of our lives. And um, it's really hard because we don't really learn about what's healthy versus what what's unhealthy, what signs to look out for. And you're really an expert in this area. And your social media content is so amazing at really digging deep and talking about what to look out for, what to do and all the signs. And you personally talked about, you know, certain things on your social media about things that you've experienced on too much detail, but just kind of like, you see it from two sides, you're a psychiatrist, and you've also have lived experience. So I think you're the perfect person to talk about this. Um, I guess let's jump in and say what's the difference between healthy and an unhealthy relationship. Yeah, I'm very nervous now to speak after that, because oh. of the expectation that is going to be put on me now. But um I wouldn't say I'm the perfect person, but I, de- I definitely do agree. I do have the personal experience and I also have the ability to see that in, in the patients that I see as well. Um, so healthy and unhealthy from the beginning, I like starting it off with this because for anyone who's listening to this and who has been in an abusive relationship, this is my message to you. A healthy relationship feels very boring. I would define it off the bat. It's a boring relationship for someone who's been abused or who's been in a very toxic, turbulent relationship. But for me, healthy essentially means peaceful, calm. It's the combination of two lives and not necessarily a perfect way, but in a way that's not turbulent, that's not super dramatic, that's not super up and extremely down. There are ups and downs in the relationship, but there's always a calm that you can come back to, a sense of peace and a sense of a midline that you can meet that person with, um, you know, every day in that relationship. Again, knowing that there are tougher times and there are easier times, but that's the general idea. And an unhealthy relationship, I would define as the exact opposite. It's a sense of extreme highs and extreme lows. And generally, we'll talk about this more in detail later with the cycles, but generally it starts off really high. So dramatically uh, um, exciting and uh, full of passion or love or attention, and then quickly quickly goes into a steep low um, to feeling bad about yourself, to feeling neglected, to feeling abandoned, and then feeling a little bit high again, then feeling neglected and abandoned. So it's confusing. And that inconsistency creates not only an addiction to that person and that relationship, but it creates a sense of feeling like it's your fault. And that's why that question is so important that you pose that you feel like you're at fault for the lows. And then those little highs you become addicted to, and then you get back to that low and then back to that high. So you just stay because you're stuck in the cycle. 
Um, and a healthy relationship is probably also one that you wouldn't say things like, I can't live without this person. I, I don't know what I would do without this person. I could never leave this relationship. My life would end. Whereas when you're in a healthy relationship, it's not super enmeshed. You're two human beings going through life together in your lanes, but sharing that life together. That's very helpful. Even just the example of healthy relationships are boring. Yes, there is good and bad times, but for the most part, it's just peaceful and boring in comparison. Can you tell us what the warning signs are that you might be in a narcissistic relationship? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll give an example from when I was in therapy and I was reflecting on my abusive relationship. The very first thing I remember feeling is why am I so well-adjusted or not well-adjusted, I actually hate that word. Why am I so <laughs> high-functioning in the world? Why am I so achieving? Like I'm, I'm doing all these wonderful things. I was an intern, I just graduated medical school. I had all these friends. I was. I was doing really well, but then when it came to the relationship, I was, I was miserable. I was low. I felt like I wasn't enough. I felt like this relationship was just so wrong, but it was me that was wrong. So you might look at your life and see that you're actually really like doing great everywhere else, but in this one particular space in your life, it's so devastatingly bad. That's the first sign I remember feeling is like, why is everything going great? But everything here is so bad in this relationship. So it's recognizing those signs uh, initially but I didn't listen to them. I ignored it. So the another sign that is so difficult to recognize is that you ignore your gut feeling. You begin to suppress it. So you'll get these feelings that are like, okay, something's wrong here. Something's up here. Something's not okay here, but you will suppress them because mm -hmm. you want to stay. You want to make it work. You want to fight for the person that you've now, you know, fallen in love with or in, in like with or in adoration with, and you want to work towards it. So you'll suppress it. You don't want to fail. You don't want it to end. So it's also suppressing all those gut feelings that are there for a reason and that we've, we've built this intuition in your life for a reason, but you'll suppress them. Other warning signs are, that are more explicit are uh, you know, being made to feel like you're not good enough, being told certain things like bad words, called names, being put down, especially if you're being put down and regularly, but then in front of other people, they're like elevating you and uplifting you like this is my wonderful boyfriend it's my wonderful girlfriend it's my wonderful partner but in private it's all like you just feel like crap all the time mm -hmm. so you're talking about the the same person uplifting you in front of other people but then when they're at home it's it's not you're not talking about other people uplifting you it's the person no it's that person yeah. yeah yeah they'll do it on purpose it's a way of gaslighting you into believing that wow I'm so lucky to have this person Mm -hmm. only in those moments. But then when you're alone, you're not lucky to have this person. You're going through so much and they're making you feel yeah. bad about yourself. Yeah. And then obviously, yeah, other things like um, that person making you feel like, I mean, I'll, we'll talk about this in a, in a cycle as well, if you want, but the, the feeling of like being compared to other people, which is triangulation. So feeling like you have to compete for the attention of that person. You can be triangulated with a job with like an opportunity with anything, not just a person, but generally it's with the person. So even if you have feelings of that person, like not giving you full attention, maybe having other people in their lives, that's also a big part of abuse, but it might not be all the time. I go back to like something you said, that's like, it's been all my, like I'm thinking about it right now. You said a healthy relationship feels boring. That right there is a very common reason people leave relationships early on. They don't feel like it's fulfilling them. How do we know that the relationship is just wrong for us and we're not really connecting with this person versus, you know, it's supposed to be this way. It's not supposed to have the highs and lows and the roller coasters and, and all of that. 
I think as healthcare, like mental healthcare professionals, we all know that that requires some inner work. Yeah. That's where the inner work comes in. So I'm not here to like blame shift or victim blame folks who go into um, or who find themselves, sorry, in abusive relationships or very turbulent, toxic ones. But whether or not you've been in one before, when you go into that healthy relationship and you're very turned off by stability or you're very turned off by consistency or um, this peaceful sense of, of liking someone, then there's some inner work to be done. Like those things are very positive, right? And I can talk about it positively now after having healed from everything I've been through. But two years ago, I would have not been interested in that. I would have been more interested in that turbulence. And I know where it comes from. I know that it comes from my upbringing. I know that it comes from my comfort zone, what I'm used to, which is turbulence, chaos, like that was my upbringing. So for me, that was comfortable, but mm -hmm. it's unlearning what we've been made to feel is comfortable. It's yeah. not comfortable to be to live in a chaotic household. It's not, you're not meant to be comfortable there. And it sucks that you had to be comfortable and survive in those situ situations. Um, and that's just one example. There's so many folks that are in abusive relationships that have a different history, but generally it's that that's what makes you feel comfortable and loved and safe. Cause in your life, you've had to associate those behaviors with love. Mm -hmm. So it takes inner work, it takes unlearning what your definitions of love are and belonging. Um, and it's, it's really hard work. It's not easy. But after a while, how do you start to feel comfortable in what you just described as like, oh, I don't know if I love them. I don't know if I like them. When you when you're working on that inner inner child that healing those those past wounds, you start to realize, oh, my gosh, why am I thinking this? So it goes a step mm -hmm. further. Mm -hmm. Why am I thinking this way? What makes me think this way? And then how can I not necessarily for the specific relationship change or adapt, but how can I unlearn what I've learned and start to now grow and process what I've been through? And while you're doing that, you can be in a relationship as well. You don't have to wait till you're yes. you know, fully, fully healed from all of that. I hate that concept, right? Like too, you can be in a relationship right. and be doing that. You don't need to love yourself before you can love someone else. Like you can learn to love yourself through the love that you receive from a healthy relationship. So that's like a really, really good um a really good thing to consider. And also like we just did a whole episode on inner child work. And one of the things you just said that resonated that we actually talked about was saying something like, whose words are those? Like, where did you learn uh, this stuff? Like, why do you feel, uh, you know, safe in this type of, why does it feel so familiar and so easy to be in this, like, you know, turmoil. So it's, it's really cool that you bring that up again. Yeah. I'll tell you, that was the hardest part for me from healing from the abusive relationship after a while it stopped being the relationship and it started being like the, the grief over the person that allowed it, right? Like I'm grieving over this individual that was so okay with being abused. And of mm -hmm. course, when you grow up in a, in a situation with like, with, you know, where, you know, your parents are there, but then they're not, they push and then they pull back, they're present and they're not, it becomes your comfort zone. So you grieve even the life that you had as a child. And that's really tough and healing as well, but it's very important. You see, you mentioned the cycle of uh, the narcissistic cycle. Um, yeah. Is it just a narcissistic cycle or is it like an abusive cycle in general, would you say? Honestly, I would say it's an abusive cycle in general, but there are a lot of larger experts in narcissistic abuse that would tell you that all domestic abusers and then sort of like even going into the extent of saying all abusers are narcissists to a certain extent. Um, I'm not going to say I agree with that. Not yet. Not until I do more research. But for now, I would just say that it's, you know, um, okay, it's, it, it's a narcissistic abuse cycle from what I know so far in my knowledge. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we would start off by saying that it's the love bombing idealization phase, then it's the devaluing phase, 
And then it's the discarding phase and then it's the hoovering phase. Mm -hmm. I add another one always at the end to say that when you leave an abusive relationship or it ends, the abuse doesn't stop there. So there's even the smear campaign, which happens after that relationship ends, which is highly abusive as well, even if it's not directly um, directed at you personally, it's out there either online or in your community or with your friend circle. Mm -hmm. So I'll start with the idolization love bombing phase. That one is one that I think is so widely like understood now. We, we talk about it a lot on social media, which I love because um, I didn't know any I didn't know any of these words before I got into my relationship. So I'm really glad we're educating people now. But it's the phase that is the one that gets you in, right? It hooks you into that relationship. It keeps you staying in that relationship. It's the incessant phone calls, the attention, the gifts, the love, the fact that within two seconds you are soulmates oh, you're my soulmate. I've been looking for you my entire life. I can't believe I found you. And it's like the second time you met them, maybe mm -hmm. third. So it's very fast. It's too much. And it's overwhelming, but because it feels so good, a lot of individuals who just needed something or have been potentially wanting it to be a relationship for so long or who are used to the turbulence, like I said before, it's, been, it's, it's nothing too surprising for them. They don't actually get the alarm bells and the warning signs. Um, and that, that uh, phase is intentional because what ends up happening is you attach the idea of that person for the rest of the relationship to that period of time, to the love bombing idolization phase. You're like, okay, they'll go back to that. They'll go back to that. They'll go back to that. And they never do. But it's intentional to keep you thinking and give you that false hope. After the love bombing um, and idealization phase, you go into the devaluing. And for me, I remember it being very sudden. I don't know if it's always sudden. I feel like it could be both gradual and sudden. But for me, it was like one overnight, I went from being the most important person to them to being the least important person to them. Mm. And that never changed. Oh. I continued to be the least important person to them for the remaining like year and a half. So, so it was overnight. Yeah. Can I ask? Yeah. Can I ask a follow-up? So you said it, for you, it was very sudden. So, yeah. so is that where you think the um, the turmoil from growing up in a maybe turbulent household or whatever plays a role that we, even though it hasn't been that long, um, that we stay in those types of relationships, even though you've been devalued? Yeah, I think I stayed in the devaluing phase for so long because I, I'm somebody as well that needs to make things work. I need mm -hmm. to make them work. I need to make it better. I will always make things better. That's been my role as well as a child that I will, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll, I'll, I'll make it work. And that being grow like growing up thinking that that you've always been that person, you're assigned that role in the relationship, you also just self-assign that role. Like, I'm gonna make it work, it's fine, I'll take care of it. So all of the, you know, they sound really ridiculous now, but they're they really are what people do. But um, I would call, I would call individuals like therapists and counselors and ask them for advice. I'd go online and search for advice to make these to make the relationship work. I'd make lists, I'd make I'd schedule calls with them and make sure we have these like scheduled time together. So like you go out of your way to do every single potential thing to make it work. So you're actually also bogged down with the thoughts of, of working on it. Like you're, you're also consumed by other things. You're not thinking, well, this relationship is really toxic and abusive. You're thinking I need to make this relationship work. You're reframing it completely. I've never heard it explained in that way. And it makes sense because your focus is so zoned in now on fixing something. Going back to the love bombing stage, just for our listeners, do you think that's a big red flag in terms of when they go on a date or the first couple of dates, somebody just going in really hard and really fast and very like heavy and extreme? 
Yeah, yeah, and it's so hard. Like, I, I don't know if you, um, if either of you, uh, t- like, uh, look after any younger, younger uh, clients or patients, but their relationships are turbulent anyway. Like, even a healthy one is so turbulent because they're young and their emotions yeah. are everywhere. So it's so hard for me to explain to them, like, no, look, the warning signs are this because sometimes that's normal for teenagers, you know, mm-hmm. to fall in love really quickly and then break up, and then you know, it's it's almost like just the you're you're growing up and that's what you're doing. But I would still, I would still make them cautious that if you are going out with somebody and especially if the feelings are not mutual, not just to go along with it. So if you're getting that person meeting you with like that heavy, heavy, very, very much like too fast love, if you don't feel it, don't go along with it. Take your time, set your boundaries. Um, but knowing that when you're young, there is also that, you know, you're gonna learn make those mistakes. And sometimes emotions are a bit heavy anyway. Um, but yeah, I still, I would still consider it a warning sign and a place for them to set their boundaries. So follow up to that, what is love bombing versus a normal level of attention and, you know, just knowing that the person likes you? Yeah, this is going to be different for everyone. I would just tell people um, for sure that love bombing isn't a one size fits all. The individual, the abuser, I will say, mirrors you. So they've studied you, they've talked to you enough that they will know exactly what it is you want. And they often will start with questions like, what are you looking for in a partner? Or what is your ideal partner? What is your ideal relationship? Rather than ask you about you, like as an individual, who are you? What are your interests? What do you like? They're asking you specific questions to do those specific things, basically perform um, to reel you in and to use those things to love bomb you, right? To give you exactly what you want in that moment. Um, So I would say, pay attention to the ways that you're asked questions, the way that you're given love um, and question it you know, wonder like, why did they give me this now? Or why are they saying this today? And like, is this like, just, just challenge the thoughts that you're having in, I'm sorry, challenge your emotions. Cause you might get pulled into it emotionally, but challenge them and think, okay, but is this reasonable now? Is this what I want in a relationship? And is this going at the pace that I'm comfortable with? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say do that because there isn't a one size fits all. Like I've heard of healthy relationships where they got married within months and it's actually very healthy and relationships where they got married within years and very healthy. So it's individual. It's about your comfort level and your pace. So you would advise like maybe first date or anything like that, like try to steer away from like, what are you looking for type questions and really get to know the person to not give a person who may be looking for that type of information, uh, the key to the door to kind of come in and just uh, act in that way yeah for me honestly I know this is extreme but that's a red flag question if they're asking me what I'm looking for in a partner I'm like "Mm." and I think a lot of people ask that like innocently I think I ask that innocently because it's just like I'm so nervous and like we just like ask it um (laughs) but like it's 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 good to know from both ends like okay what may I be perceived that if I'm asking this question but also like maybe try to it's okay if you if you get asked that but try to steer it away like don't give all your cards away in that yeah in that's that a good, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. and pay attention yeah. to what the follow-ups are and what yeah. else they're doing are they interested at all in you and yeah. like who you are and who makes you who you are and your hobbies and stuff or are they constantly trying to figure out how to love you yeah that's exactly it yeah, yeah. Okay, so it goes from love bombing and then you go to devaluing. And what does that look yeah, like? Yeah, devaluing is the worst feeling in the world. Um, it's actually worse. For me, it was worse than just being discarded. Um, devaluing is where you're there. It's a constant push and pull. They're doing just enough to keep you there. 
but doing so much harm, so much harm. And that's where the, the trauma bond comes in that I was sort of alluding to earlier is like, you're so used to this extreme high of love bombing when you go extremely low to like this low level of, of devaluing. And then you get these breadcrumbs in between where the individual that's abusing you is doing just enough in just the perfect amount of time, but just to make you keep you there. Mm-hmm. So you don't leave. And while they're doing that, those breadcrumbs are for the individual being abused are like everything in the world. Like, oh my gosh, look what they did for me. Look at what they said to me. Look at all these wonderful things that objectively, if they're saying it to a friend or someone that truly loves and cares for them, they're like, what are you talking about? Like they said, I love you. That's bare minimum. They got you a gift while you were out. That's bare minimum. They paid for your food. That's like, these are things that are not universal. I know, but it's the bare minimum things for you. And in that relationship, they become like, whoa, extremely overvalued because you're so deprived of love. So honestly, it was the worst. It's the worst feeling in my opinion, um, because you, and that's what, like what Nadia was saying is like, your focus is so on one thing that you're not thinking about the relationship and how awful it is. You're still thinking about, it's my fault. I deserve this bad treatment. I deserve that because they still treat me so well. They don't treat you so well. You're just seeing those little brief moments of breadcrumbs Mm -hmm. that your mind is addicted to. It's, It's fixating on that. And every other moment of wrong, it's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. And you have to fix it. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming the breadcrumbs are calculated. Like Honestly, if they, I, I feel like they are. Yeah. Right? Like if if they find, like they realize maybe you're getting really fed up. Is that when they yes. throw something at, like yes. they throw a bone? Yeah. Okay. They know. Mm-hmm. They know. They, they'll test your limits. They test your boundaries. They did that already when they were love bombing you. And your, and your, your guard came off, right? Your boundaries were being crossed and you're like, it's okay. They love me. So they already tested everything. They know what your limits are. So they're, yeah, they're exactly calculating. Can we have like, let's talk about specific examples that people can, can be, okay. So you've just been love bombed. Like you met someone, you told them exactly how you wanted to be loved. They're giving you all of that. It's been two weeks. They're in love with you. They want to marry you. Um, and then how does it, what does a drop-off look like? And like, is it just like day and night? Like you wake up one day and they're just not giving you affection. Maybe like what, what types of examples can people look out for? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. So I, I, it could be overnight. Like I can definitely say for myself, it was, but it can be gradual. So just keeping an eye out for that shift is, um, is important too, but you'll start to lose, um, they'll start to withhold things from you, right? Like take things away. So yes, affection is certainly one of them. If that was a part of your relationship, it would be physical affection or words of affirmation, like loving words that they'll, they won't give to you anymore. And they'll only give to you in specific situations like that breadcrumbing. Um, Other things are like, if they ever, you know, the things they did for you before, they will not do them anymore. Let's say they used to book dinners out for you to go out to eat. They'll stop doing that. No, it's okay. You do it. You book it. You, You book that date. And then it ends up you being the one that plans every day for the rest of their relationship. So those nice things they did before they stopped doing, let's say they used to be really like give you acts of service. If your love language is acts of service, which mine was, um, and then they, they would maybe potentially, um, help you out with tasks that you needed help with. And without even you having to ask, cause they were so in tune with you and your needs, which is really important in a relationship as well. Like you should ask for things. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but sometimes you get in tune with like, okay, I, you're, this is coming up. How can I help you kind of thing? They would do that for you then the love bombing phase and devaluing. It's like, what are you talking about? I don't have time for that. Yeah. Suddenly, I don't have time for that. What do you mean? I'm, I'm busy. Mm-hmm. So you go to a complete level of like, you're a stranger. Like you don't like what happened here. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so a spe- I hope those are specific enough. Yeah, <laughs> know I know they're you. very specific. And yeah. I'm just thinking of like the emotional, that's where the feelings and thoughts for the person who um, is in the relationship, not the abuser, but you know, the other person in the relationship that to think that what did I do wrong to deserve this? Like, I'm assuming that that's where that like being gaslit type of feelings start coming up where you're like, wait a minute, they were doing this and now they're not, I must have done something. Is there a part where that person is then like, what did I do wrong? Are they trying, are we trying to come out, come to the abuser and figure out what's going on or are we silent or is it different based on individuals? I think for everybody, they'll say they try. They first try. But everyone like, well, what happened? Like you used to do that. Or we used to do those things together. Like, um, or I feel like you're, we're not having enough time together. I'm sure there's different ways. They, every single one tries mm-hmm. and they try a lot and they try different ways because one didn't work. So they do a different one. And then of course, after a period of time, you've exhausted every, every way you could approach it. And then you stop, you become silent. And that's also quite devastating too, because you look at a lot of, um, victims of abuse and you think these are the most outspoken you know just like so involved in their jobs or their communities or their world um and I know this just from doing the, like my platform so far meeting people that I'm like wait how how is it possible that these are the victims of abuse that are just so out there everywhere in the world so outspoken so confident so everything that you'd want to be and then the relationship goes silent mm-hmm. for all their needs they just stop asking abuse doesn't discriminate. Like it's not no. like a certain type of people, a person is more uh, prone to it or whatever, because when you get into the world of like gaslighting, everyone is susceptible to, to oh, being yeah. in that position. And it, it, the, the psychological and nervous system, like all of that happens the same in all of us. So it's not like, oh, you're not strong enough, or you were weak. Like that has nothing to, like, there's no it's not about strength or anything like that. Like literally anyone could be a victim to this. No, no. And I specifically didn't want to use the word like strong people out yeah. there because, because I hated that. I would get that so much. Like after mm-hmm. I started to speak out about my experience and everyone said to me, well, I thought you were like so strong. Like I can't, if you can go through this, like that makes me scared. Like what if I'm like, this is, so, this is not helpful. So you go through that. You feel like, like, you're not sure what's going on. You might try, 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 try until you stop trying, but you don't leave. No, you don't leave. You don't leave. You don't, you don't leave. But let me tell you, after, after a while of that cycle, discarding usually starts. And the discard phase is generally when the abuser is either with other people or is actively seeking other relationships. So they, Mm-hmm. And they can lose you. That's what discarding means, right? It's like, you know, I, you're dispensable, which really is painful to hear, but mm-hmm. ultimately that's what the, the definition of that phase. So you become completely irrelevant in their life. And I remember that period distinctly for me because it would become the, the period of devaluing I described to you where they don't do any of the things they used to do for me. Um, I, they no longer have time for me. I'm no longer special. I'm no longer important to, I no longer matter. I did not matter. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when I was in my lowest point psychologically because I was also going through so much in my life. And I remember that this person used to be such a support for me. You know, they were so supportive for me. They they're, they did a really great way of love bombing me where they did everything I needed. That's why I say it's so individualistic, right? They know exactly what you want in your relationship and what love you need. And they took it all away. And so I was stuck in this discard phase remembering that person and so addicted to that person and having to tell myself that's not who they are 
And that realization sucks. And it's so hard to swallow and it's so hard to leave. But then you leave. And I did. I did leave. I left like three or four times. Mm -hmm. um, and I would always get Hoover back in. Or at least I, you know, until the last time I kept getting Hoover back in. So yeah. even when you have that composure, you come to that decision, you, you reflect on it, you might see, you get people's opinions. The hoovering is so strong that you still believe there's hope. And I'll explain to you what hoovering is. Like, it's not necessarily the same as love bombing because they already did that and they succeeded, right? They don't have to do that again. Hoovering is like the stuff that you asked for or that you needed or that are required, I guess I should say, in a basic relationship, like respect, time, appreciation. They start giving you those things. They start respecting you, respecting your time. Like for example, I remember my ex-partner would would never care about my time or schedule, call whenever they want and interrupt me at work. Like my life didn't matter. I would have to be readily available for this person, but they would never make time for me. Um, and then suddenly in the hoovering phase, it's like, oh, what time do you work? I'm just like, what time are you off? What time do you have a break? Like, oh, okay, I'll schedule this time with you. Mm -hmm. I know that for probably you guys listening, like that's bare minimum. <laughs> <laughs> to know your right. partner's schedule and to make time accommodating for your partner is bare minimum. But for me, I was like, oh my God, this person's an angel. They're so wonderful. This is so exciting. I'm going to have a normal relationship again. So I get Hoover back in. And that's one example of that bare minimum crumb they give you just to suck you back in. And it lasts, I promise you, no more than three days. Hmm. And right back to devaluing and discarding. So I, I, I noticed the patterns after I left like four times when I left permanently and I counted, I'm like, every time, the behavior they promised lasted for no more than three days. That's, so how, even, it, that's how strong it is. Yes. No, even when you're on the discard phase where you're disposable to them, if you're the one that decides to leave, they likely will try to get you back. Oh, they're up and up there. It, it's the end of the world. How dare you leave me? How dare you leave me? It's until they leave you. Like when they leave you, it's fine. There's no problem in that. But for you to do that, it's the biggest insult and injury to, the, to a narcissist. Um, and they'll do anything to fight you, to fight you out of it. So I remember, I remember when I left the very last time, it was consistent phone calls. I'm outside your house. I'm here. I'm here to talk to you, like, even to that extent, like coming to your house, coming to your place of work, showing up where they know you're going to be, sending you letters, sending you gifts. This all happened to me over the period of weeks, constant phone calls, texts, emails. If they lose, if they lose contact with you some way, if you block them or remove them or, you know, change your number they'll find another way. So it's constant. I'm just thinking like after being devalued yeah. and discarded, that type of attention is like, this is what I've been looking for. And what if this time is different? And which is why you get hoovered so many times um, back in. And, and I'm assuming that everyone gets hoovered, like for the number of times is different, you know, or is there yeah. like an average number yeah. that like is pretty typical? Would you say? No, I've seen people in these relationships for 20 years. So yeah, they, they've probably been hoovered um, hundreds of times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it changes. And exactly what you just said, what if this time is different is such a powerful question because you literally say that to yourself every mm -hmm. time you go back, oh, it's going to be different. They, they did this thing that I've always wanted them to do or they uh, said this to me and I've always wanted them to say that. They apologize for everything. They're mm -hmm. very good at apologizing actually in the sense that they're very animated and there's tears and it's very dramatic and they're on their knees and they're begging mm -hmm. but uh, I've noticed that often the most very emotional and um and again almost extreme <laughs> apologies come from abusers mm -hmm. they're so excessive mm -hmm. and dramatic about it um but nothing happens there's no change behavior there's no there's no plan there's no intention to change 
um, nothing. It's just, can I perform my way into this, <laughs> this relationship? And their apologies are the most extreme. I got, let me tell you. Yeah. yeah. I guess that's like the saying an apology without action is just manipulation. It's manipulation. Thank you. Yes. They're manipulating their way. Yes. There, it's an apology, but it's manipulation. That's a lot. And that's something that we see as therapists all the time. I can speak to the difficulty in when you straight up get asked, do you think I'm in a narcissistic relationship? I'm, I'm assuming the best way to, to go about it is to take things slow. But what if you're not used to taking things slow at the beginning? Like we're used to like, oh my gosh, well, my heart spoke and I couldn't you know, like stop myself, or I really want this. Like we all crave connection. We all crave relationships. So like to tell someone to slow down might be a foreign concept to them. How, how do we slow down? I think like the main question I would ask somebody if they are asking me if they're in a narcissistic relationship is how do you feel? What are you feeling? Um, and a lot of folks that are in abusive relationships, like I said, already have a very difficult time accessing their gut feeling and accessing their emotions. So it's starting there. If you are comfortable moving forward, if you are comfortable um, with, you know, uh, with the progression of the relationship, if you're not having doubts or if you're not having second thoughts or if you're not having all these, you know, these emotions that I told you I suppress, then, I mean, I'm not going to say you're not in one, but I'm going to say you can, you know, that's a green flag to move forward is how are they making you feel and how are you feeling in yourself? But ultimately there's no like, rule that says if you've been in an, in an abusive relationship and then you healed from it that you're now immune like you're never going to be in one that's not true and I know that that's not what people want to hear they don't want to hear like well, what do you mean I already went through and I already healed from it like this is never going to happen again no it's not the point of this healing process is to access what you feel on the inside it's to instill sorry uh, to to have boundaries and actually implement them it's to explicitly state what you want and what you need and to say no when you don't, um, and it's to leave in times that even when you feel a connection that you have a gut feeling, it's to say, no, walk away. Mm -hmm. So these are all steps of the process of getting to know someone. It's, I think it's more so how are they making you feel? And I know there's like, um, there's like a viral video that was like, when you're out on a date, check how they're feeling, like watch their body language and their eye contact. No, no, don't do any of that. How are you feeling yeah. when you're with them? How do you feel after you leave the date with them? Do you feel drained? Do you feel confused? Do you feel that they're kind of inconsistent? Do you feel like they're giving you a sense of peace or is it a sense of mm, uh, like discomfort, that little feeling, that cringe feeling? Mm -hmm. um, so I don't have a very good answer to that question because I mean, I personally haven't um, been in like a long-term relationship since. So I have to also navigate it myself. But all I know is that it doesn't look a certain way. It's gonna look different for every single two people in a relationship. Um, but I would say, look inward, please look, think about how you're feeling. Would you give the same advice for how to leave the relationship? How to leave is a really tough question, but it's an important one. Um, this, I'll also want to talk about the, the last phase, which is oh, the, yeah. uh, but I want to mention it here because that's also part of the reason why you don't want to go. So a lot of the time abusers, when they'll recognize in the discard phase, the Hoover, they've hoovered you, it doesn't work. It's now the threats of, well, no one's going to believe you. Are you going to say anything about what I did? Because no one's going to believe you. And also, you know, excuse my language, like very, like very bad words, like calling you stupid, calling you an idiot. You're that you're, I'm not going to say them all, but calling you words that are so demeaning and rude that imply that you're, you don't have any credit. Like, how dare you go out there and talk about me? Basically discrediting you by using these very profane words. 
So they'll threaten you um, that, okay, now, I've, now, okay, now you're going to go. Now you know who I am. The mask came off. You know what's going on. Now I'm going to threaten you that you should ne you're never going to tell anyone. You're just going to move on with your life like I don't exist. And this didn't happen and like, just leave me alone. They want to confirm that. And they also want to confirm that they always have access to you if they want to as well. So there's a sense of control. So you know that all those things in your head are going to happen even if you leave. So it's also a deterrent. Like there's another level, another layer of reasons not to leave. So it's so hard. Mm -hmm. But I have a few things like personally that I'd want to tell people that are in that phase that are thinking about leaving or that would like to leave. And it is that no matter how bad that smear campaign is or that post uh, uh, breakup fallout is, there is nothing worse than staying in that relationship long-term. There is nothing worse than that. Like you have survived the worst, you've been through the worst of this relationship. And there's, you know, there's only one trajectory and that is you continue on with it and it stays the same and you're abused and you're always feeling like crap. And you're, it's always gonna be in the same up and down, high, low, or you leave and there's gonna be a brief period of really difficult crap to deal with, but then you can move on with your life and you can pro process everything, heal from everything and move on. So I would say it's a long-term gain to leave. It's not a, it's not, it's a short-term loss versus like forever being in a relationship where you're constantly being made to feel bad about yourself. And there's like lots of statements that I hear from people who are leaving relationships, like I'm never gonna find anyone like them again. It's a very common statement because they've been told that that user said, you're never gonna find anyone like me or um, anyone who's with me is gonna be lucky to have me. Like you're nothing, no one's gonna be lucky to have you. Um, no one's gonna put up with you. You think there's someone that's gonna put up with you? Like no one is, these statements. So it's recognizing the voice inside your head and saying, like you said, Micheline, who's that? Who is saying those words to me? Whose words are those? Are they mine or are they that person? So the abusers. So it's starting to distinguish who you truly are from what they said you are. You are not who they said you are. You are the person you were before. You lived just before before they came into your life. You will live after they leave your life. Um, more practical ways to leave is I think when you're in the process of leaving where you've left is um, get a support system. So have a plan in place of like, who am I gonna go to in those really desperate moments where the trauma bond comes back and you wanna talk to them. Or when that feeling of injustice comes back and you wanna just scream at them and tell them everything they did to you that was wrong, which is very common after abusive relationships. You just wanna, you don't wanna lash out. You don't wanna harm them. You just wanna tell them, look at what you've done. Look at what you've said to me. Like, this is what you've done to me, um, which won't do anything, but it's a, it's a desire we have. And then finally, it's to get closure. You're gonna wanna somehow ask questions. Like you're gonna have so many questions after it ends, but they're not the person you should talk to and they're never gonna give you closure. So have the support system to go to in those nights when it's really hard, the times when you wanna scream, the times when you wanna get closure and have some someone or, or a group of friends, family, a therapist to go to to talk about it. When you have those people in your life, you will be able to get to like no contact with that person, be able to forget even checking on that person or thinking about that person slowly but surely. But other tips, I mean, there's so many things I could say, like go back to your doing your regular hobbies, your activities, the things you love. Um, I, I went back to running, which was so exciting. Like I had time for self-care, which I never had time for for a year and a half. I never had a moment to look after myself because I was so consumed by this relationship and by this person that I was like, wow, I actually have like time. <laughs> I can do things. Mm -hmm. So wow. I went back. Yeah, I went back to looking after myself. I got uh, a family doctor for the first time, a therapist. I, you know, got my
massages and did my nails. Like these are things I never got to do, which is shocking for most people, but it's, it's really what you lose. You lose yourself in the process of a relationship. So go back to meeting yourself and doing all the things you deserved all along. Things that we hear always, when we talk about like narcissistic relationship, there's two words that we've brought up here that we didn't actually define. And I don't want to assume that everyone knows what we're talking about. So there's um, trauma bonds and gaslighting. Um, If we could like just briefly kind of talk about what is a trauma bond and what is gaslighting? So a trauma bond is typically defined as a mental um, like attachment to an abusive relationship and the highs and lows that come with it. um, That pretty much is literally, it's a cycle of abuse, gaslighting, devaluing, but then intermittent positive reinforcement little bits of love, like the breadcrumbs I was talking about. I don't think it's just mental. I think a trauma bond is a physical attachment as well. You get physical symptoms when you're away from that person. You are withdrawing from a drug. It Mm -hmm. is that, that powerful. I have seen folks that go through a trauma bond and leave the relationship that are paralyzed, that are in in their beds, shaking, crying, that have no appetite, that like things that are part of withdrawal symptoms, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, syndromes. And the bond that keeps you together, a very important point is those little breadcrumbs that they give you that you've been waiting for that all of a sudden, like now they're giving it to you because they're feeling that you're going to leave or you have threatened to leave. And now they're giving you these things and that sucks you back in. So like, it keeps that cycle kind of going on and on and on and on. Um, so basically yeah, exactly. the whole cycle that we're talking about is, is that trauma bond. Yeah, essentially. And like we said before, it's very much planned because they've tested your boundaries so much so far that they know when you're reaching your limit. And that's when the positive reinforcement comes. And gaslighting. Gaslighting broadly is denying or doubting the reality of another person. Mm-hmm. So it is done through, uh, through words, through action, through silence. You can even have give someone a silent treatment and gaslight them. Mm-hmm. But it is making the other person doubt their reality, doubt their perception of reality, doubt their experience through those behaviors. When in the cycle does this usually happen? Devaluing instantaneously. Yeah. So in that devaluing phase, when that first thing happens and they, that they stop doing, for example, or the behavior that they do that crosses your boundary and you ask about it, what are you talking about that didn't happen? Or I thought you were so cool. I thought you wouldn't care. So it's, it's, it's those little, little statements. Those are gaslighting. And then they escalate further to, you're wrong. That didn't happen. You're crazy. You make things up. You're always doing this. You're always making things up. You don't know what you're talking about into insults to literal beratement. You're an idiot. Why would you like listen to yourself um, to, to driving you to points of actually being like acting out to having this reaction to the abuse where you are not yourself. You step out of your body. Like gaslighting leads to so many awful things. <laughs> Actually, have you, I don't know if this was like an intense case of gaslighting. I don't know the whole story too deeply, but there's a, I'm, I'm a fan of true crime and there was uh, the Betty Broderick case. I don't know. Yes. Yes. You know what I'm talking about? If you all don't know what we're talking about, uh, this woman killed uh, her ex-husband and his new wife. Um, but when I watched the documentary, it wasn't, a, sorry, it was a series. a series on Netflix that is speaking of the real case. I, as the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, he drove her there. Like he literally gaslit her so bad. And like, like you can, you, you can drive someone to do really like things that is out of character because of the level of abuse. Do you, do you know, what are your thoughts on that? (laughs) 
I loved that. I loved watching it. I mean, obviously it was awful at what she yeah. went through, but I loved watching it because um, and trigger warning as well, if you're going to, if we're going to recommend mm -hmm. folks to watch us, it is very triggering. Trigger so warning, if you're, yeah. yeah. If you're not in a good place right now with, with the, with gaslighting potentially like save it for later, but I think it's good to watch because at, when you get to a point in your life after, after going through gaslighting or going through abuse, you start to actually really love watching this to study it, to remember certain things that, you know, not in a bad way, but in an informative way, like educational way. But I remember thinking the same thing, like he drove her there and he did it, but even more to the le level of anyone can gaslight you, anyone can abuse you, but this person had the law. Mm. And we know that justice yeah. and, you know, that law isn't a just system. It's a legal system, right? There's no justice in it, frankly, like it's just laws and you can, you can do whatever you want with the law as a lawyer. You can tweak things and move things around and change words and put it in your favor. And everything was in his favor with this, um, with his ex-wife. So he drove her there, but he had so much more power because of what he, he did for a, for a living. Um, but wasn't what was most devastating is that everybody else in their life agreed to. And that's what made me so sad is like talking about that last phase, that smear campaign phase is the abuser will do anything to discredit you, mm -hmm. anything. So another thing that to be mindful of is that during that relationship or after the relationship ending is that you will lose people. You will definitely lose people. If you had any mutual friends, if you had um, even family, sometimes folks that were married to an abuser, abuser will manipulate the family into thinking that it's, the, yeah. it's their own child's fault. There's like, a term for so that, right? Flying, is it still called monkeys. monkeys? Yeah. And it comes yeah. from like the Wizard of Oz or where, where does it come from? I don't remember exactly where it comes from, but basically it's like getting your getting like everyone that is a mutual or like the family uh to be on the side of the abuser so like somebody may be like um well i'm gonna call your mom and tell her how bad you you've been so that if we break up she's on my side kind of thing you know or yeah. that kind of thing yeah. everybody yeah. but even taking it a step further i've seen smear campaigns on social media on tiktok accounts and people just coming on and telling their story and trying to discredit someone else and just the back and forth between the two people. Yeah, yeah, it happens a lot on social media now. With, with that access, definitely someone would, would, would use it. But I think something to be mindful of is that the difference between a, a smear campaign and somebody coming forward about their, their truth, what they experienced, is that a smear campaign is directed at the individual and it is descriptions, words, what you know determined like determining factors like features like calling someone something making judgments about a person whereas a truth or a story about what what someone went through is a description of their experience you're not hearing them describe the abuser they're not talking about them they're talking about how they felt what they went through and how they're you know um you know, if they're healing or what you know anything after that so it's a huge um important factor because i know that i didn't expect it actually I didn't expect that that was going to happen. I didn't expect that I was going to lose so many friends and that I was going to be so discredited and that I was going to be attacked online. Like I remember I would get comments on my TikTok and I actually stopped making them for such a long period of time because it, it, it made me anxious. It made me so anxious. And that's knowing that I never named the person, never named them once. I only described what I went through. So can you imagine the people who have the courage to name their abusers, like the, the type of backlash they get? And I know this sounds super grim. Like, I don't want it to sound bad. I want it. I want people to, to know that you don't have to come forward and say your story. Not at all. That doesn't make it more true ever. You can, if you want to, and you can, you cannot if you want to. Um, but if you do do it, 
even if you get that backlash, it doesn't make it less true and it doesn't make your experience less valid. And it is unfortunately part of the cycle. So if anything, it confirms your experience. It confirms for you that it was abuse if you end up going through that smear campaign. So it should be a moment of validation like, well, it was gonna happen anyway, because I, this, is, this is the abuse cycle, this is how it is. And I'm not doing anything wrong. So I want people to know that as well, but also to know that you don't have to go public or talk about it publicly because it's not for everybody and you don't have to. But yeah, the smear campaign sucks <laughs> and you lose a lot of people in it. And mm -hmm. um, most important thing I would say is that even after you do, you, you open the doors for very, very loving and healthy relationships, which I can confirm is true. You really do. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. difficult. So what... Um... If somebody's stuck in a trauma bond right now or in a narcissistic relationship and they're considering leaving, what advice could we give them? I um I just made a post about this, which is perfect. So I can I can remember the stuff I said in that. So the first thing I'd want them to know is what are the facts? What actually happened? What actually is happening? So with a trauma bond, we've already said, you get bogged down with what's happening. You're so focused on fixing, on repair, on being better, on doing better, on loving them into making you, you know, loving them into treating you well, sorry. So it's what is actually happening. They might've promised this. They might've said they're gonna do that, but what did they do? So think about the facts, write them down if it helps. So I remember I had a list that just said, why not? And my friend was on the phone with me once and she's like, just write it down, just say, why not? And I ended up writing four hours and it was four pages long of things that happened, things that were said to me, things that were promised, but not met four pages of why not? And just two hours, like, can you imagine how much a person would write if they were in a relationship for five years, 10 years? So write down, even if you want to call it a why not list, go for it, write down what actually happened. And then um, I would say that once you know the facts, it's how, how are you going to grieve the relationship? How are you actually going to go through the process of, of understanding what happened, of acknowledging what happened and of accepting it? A lot of the time in the, in the process of healing from a trauma bond, you're still like, no, 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 it wasn't that bad. No, they still love me. They're still a good person. Like they really do love me and they tried and all of that. The excuses keep happening. So it's regular training your brain and your mind to remember that it wasn't your fault and what they did was wrong. And they might be an okay person, but they weren't good to you. So it's important to just reframe the thoughts that you had and grieve them. Grieve the loss of those feelings you thought you had. Grieve the fact that you thought it was love. It's okay to admit that it wasn't. It's okay to admit that it wasn't healthy. And it's okay to admit that you were trauma bonded. It, it's really painful to say those things and to admit them the first time, but it's part of the grief. Um, and it's okay to grieve that person, to know that the person you thought they were isn't who they actually are. So it's a process of grieving the relationship and grieving them. I love the writing down the facts because often our emotions get like, you know, bogged down and the why not. That's such, such a great, you know, piece of advice. And grief has been a topic we've been talking about on our podcast a lot, because whenever there's trauma, we're always grieving a loss. Sometimes the opposite of being traumatized is to appropriately grieve, to, to sit there and like truly feel the feelings and feel the loss and go through the motions so that yeah. it doesn't get trapped in your body and it doesn't get trapped in that cycle so that you can have that clear vision and move forward. Yeah. Um, and speaking of that being trapped in your body, it's, it, it is already been trapped in your body as well. So I would also say that along with feeling your feelings um, and allowing yourself to grieve, I would also say that 
you are going to be processing heavy emotions. And I'm sure like you both know that in the, in doing that physical symptoms show. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so interesting. Like something I'd love to mention is that individuals who've been in abusive relationships will say, I was so healthy. Like I was actually like my you know, doing well, eating well, my skin was great. My hair was great. Everything was fine physically. But then after the relationship, I was sick. I was unwell and I lost my hair. My skin was breaking out. I lost weight or I gained weight. I had no appetite. I, things really start to show in your body and your body had been keeping that that score for that whole time you were in the relationship. So it's not that I, I should go back because I was so physically okay there. No, it's because your body was processing nothing. Mm-hmm. So you were just surviving and in survival mode. Sure, yeah, your body's going to be doing its best to just keep going and status quo. But when you're processing, your body's like, really letting go um so keep in mind that that's going to happen and be self-compassionate with that love yourself regardless of those changes and the those heavy emotions and those very heavy physical changes that's just a perfect thing to say at the end because we've been ending every episode with adding in self-compassion somehow Mm. but i i love that that was the very last thing you said but i think those takeaways are super important to anyone listening and extremely helpful and actually something that people can put into action. So thank you so much. That was so informative. So dear mind, why do I feel like it's my fault and I'm the problem in my relationship? It's not your fault. I'm seeking connection and I just want to be loved. And you were never the problem. So repeat that back to yourselves. It's not your fault. You want connection. You want love. And your brain is trying to do that. And it's trying to protect you and keep you safe. Thank you again so much for coming on, Dr. Nahla. Where can people find you and, you know, follow all of this advice and see all of your posts? So I'm on Instagram and TikTok for now. My Instagram is I'm Dr. Nahla and my TikTok is just Dr. Nahla. And we will add it in the show notes as well. So be sure it'll all be linked there so people can find you easier. Thank you again for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and family and remember to leave us a review. We love reading your comments. Take a screenshot of the episode you're listening to along with your thoughts and share it to your story and tag us so we can reshare it to our story. And be sure to follow us on social media at mind.fully.healing on Instagram at mindfullyhealing on YouTube and on TikTok at mindfully.healing. Until next time. Thank you.